Alrighty. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. Man, I, uh, I'll be honest. I think generally speaking, this service is a lot better than first service in terms of like coming back out of the greeting time. So we're trying to figure out like, how do we get people to come back? How do we get them to come back? Because they just love to talk, which is great, which is great. And so we have this little video. So thank you, JH, for that fun little video. Um, are we doing okay, though? It's okay. What's that? Could we do the video again? Yeah, sure. Let's do the video. It's pretty exciting. Don't blink. It's almost done. And there it is. Woo! Okay. So we're going to jump literally right into a text today. Um, we're going to go Luke 18. If you've got a Bible page, 877. Luke 18. If you have not been here in the past uh, two months or so, I'm going to just apologize because typically I do my best to give context to what we've been doing. Today I'm giving virtually zero context, um, but you can find it on the podcast. You can go to the website and you can kind of see where we've been. I'll give you about 10 seconds of context and then we'll get into this text. So we have been talking about um, clarity, this whole idea of clarity at Northwest Hills in particular over the last couple weeks. Who are we as a church? What are, we all as, what are we about? What are the things that God has specifically asked us to do? And how are we doing that? Um, we said that our mission and vision is to love Jesus, to live like him, to make him known. In order to love Jesus, we have two simple asks. And the first one is that we commit to Sundays. And that may sound simple, but again, it's, it's a big ask these days. It's a very common way of thinking to say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm not really for the institutional thing. I don't really need to be part of the church. I've got me and Jesus working good. I don't really need all the extra stuff. But the Bible knows nothing of a Christian who is not part of a local church where that's possible. And so we're just asking, make that possible, be a part of the church. And then the second thing that we're kind of diving into, and today's kind of the second week of it, is practicing the spiritual disciplines. And we ended last week basically with a simple question saying, do you want to grow in your faith? Right, Because all of us on some level, we are somewhere when it comes to where we are in our faith. And are we just comfortable where we are or do we really want to grow? And we talked about like physically speaking, a lot of us are just, we're just okay with where we are physically, right? Like, you know what? I may have some ailment, but I'm not dead yet. Like I'll make it. And very often when it comes to our spiritual worlds and our spiritual lives, we kind of have the same mentality. We have the same attitude of like, you know what? I'm okay. I'm I'm making it. I, me and Jesus, like I've, I've got my fill up on Sunday morning when I can get there and I'm okay. But, but really the invitation is to dive much deeper. And so the, the big kind of question that we started out with was, do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to grow? If you want to grow, there are things that you can do, which is really weird. And it's, it's this like weird mix of like, God only does it, but I have a part to play. And we're going to constantly be in this tension, this whole sermon series. But there are things that we can do. The disciplines are things that we can do. They're activities. And these activities are a means to an end. They're not the end. They are a means to an end. They're things that we can do. And I use the example of like putting a seed in the soil and then begging God to grow us. But there are ways that we can physically put the seed in the soil and not be surprised if we not grow. And really, we're asking, do we want to grow? And the first of all these disciplines that we're actually going to look at today is the discipline of prayer. So I'm going to ask that we would stand up. I'm going to read from Luke 18 all about the discipline of prayer. 
And this is starting in verse 1. When I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you are going to say, thanks be to God. Very great. And then I'm going to pray because we're talking about prayer. It feels right. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, we come before you um, as a people right now, um, where it can be easy to kind of collectively feel like we're in a, a certain space this morning, but individually we come all over the place. Um, some of us, this concept of spiritual disciplines is a strange concept, it's a foreign concept. For some of us, this idea of, of prayer is, um, isn't a regular thing that we've been familiar with for a long time. And Jesus, I truly believe that you have something for each of us this morning. And I just ask that, that our hearts would be open, that we would be willing to say, okay, God, we're going to open up your word. What do you have to say? What does your word have to teach me? Jesus, we need you more than anything. We love you. Amen. Amen. You may take a seat. So what we just read was a parable. Uh, a parable is a made-up story. It's a fake story. There's no part of this story that Jesus said actually happened. He made this up. Uh, it's a story to teach a bigger point, a bigger story. And it's a story that from the very beginning, he tells us why the story was written, which is incredibly helpful, right? You ever have those conversations where you need to start him out saying, hey, the conversation that we are about to, to have, let me tell you my heart behind it first so that there's no confusion, Right? I do that with my wife at times. And Luke, the human author, does that very first upfront. He says this, he says this uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So what's this whole sermon about? What is this whole passage about? Why is he telling the story? He says the answer in verse 1, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He says this, he says, keep praying. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't get weary. Keep persevering. Keep believing. It may feel like God is distant. It may feel like he's far off. Keep believing. Keep praying. I think that's interesting. 2,000 years ago, that word was written. You think that has relevance for us today? Absolutely. Um, recently, the last two months, three months, I've been walking very closely with a very close friend of mine who's, uh, who's getting separated from his wife. And that's the same message I keep telling him every single time I see him. Don't lose heart. Like this is a hard season. It's a dark season. You will get through this. Do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. Do not lose heart. And Luke starts it out the exact same way. To the effect that they ought always to pray so that they will not lose heart. 
Well, why would Jesus start his parable like this? Why is he starting it out? Why is there a parable like this at all? Now, this is one of those places in Scripture where it's a pretty unfortunate chapter break. Uh, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that the chapter and verses are things that we've added later. So to get the real context of this, you've got to uh, scoot back a little bit into chapter 17, starting in verse 20, look all the way through 37. So in verse 20, you've got this group of religious leaders, and they're coming up to Jesus, and they ask him a question. And the question is this, when is the kingdom of God coming? Right? Fundamentally, they have this expectation that this, this Messiah that they've been waiting for is supposed to come at some point. And so this group of religious leaders is asking Jesus, well, when is this person coming? And Jesus responds to them, and his response is a little bit strange. It's a little bit confusing to them. But then he turns to his friends and he says this. Jesus talking to his closest friends, he says this. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Okay, listen carefully. He says, you will have a desire to see something, but you won't see it. That's a super interesting thing for Jesus to say, right? Like, how often do I feel that way? I feel like, man, I want to see something a certain way. I've got this idea of who God is and how he's supposed to work. But Jesus tells his closest friends, he says, there will be a day when you will expect to see something and you will not see it. Specifically here, Jesus is talking about his second coming. He's talking about a time when he will return. And he says that you, you have this idea of what this is going to look like, but the reality is um, it's not going to happen the way that you think it happens. And the warning he gives them is because it's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen, there is a danger that you will lose your faith, that you will lose hope, that you will lose sight of me. You ever been there before? You ever been in that spot where you feel like, okay, God, I'm, I'm expecting you to work a certain way. I'm expecting you to do something and I'm not seeing it. And the danger here that Jesus refers to is if you stop praying, if you are not persistent in your prayer, there may be a time where you'll say, you know what? I don't know if the thing's real to begin with. And so he gives this story to illustrate his point. Starting in verse two, he says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So let's look at these two people. First the judge, then the widow. Okay, you've got a male and you've got a female, which instantly in first century Jewish culture would have been um, a, a hierarchy of power and authority and someone who had none. The male, uh, the judge, he was someone who sat on a throne, who had a gavel. Whenever he hit it down, that was law. That became the truth. And he was a man of extreme arrogance. The text says that he neither feared God nor respected man. Now that's a horrible judge, right? If you ever have to go before a judge, you want a judge who fears God and loves people, right? Amen. This guy, not so much, um, which was strange even for that culture, because to not respect man in that culture, to not care about this widow at all, would have been quite shameful. And in an honor and shame society, that would have been really looked down upon. So he instantly was someone who said, you know what? I don't care what the culture has to say. I don't care what the social norms are. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't fear God and I don't respect man. Um, this was something that unfortunately in first century Jewish world was also somewhat common for there to be corrupt judges. Uh, you look at the Hebrew word for the word judge and it's Diane Gezeroth. And that word Gezeroth uh, means literally judge of prohibition or a judge of punishment. 
Well, there's this saying that you can read in early Jewish literature where they take the R from Gezeroth and they put an L in there, Gezeloth, and it means judge of thievery. And so it's just very common. This was something, oh man, these judges, they are um, evil people. They can be bought, they can be, persec- or they can be persuaded, they can be bribed. Um, there's writing in the ancient Jewish Talmud that talked about a simple bowl of meat would be able to buy you um, the outcome that you wanted in a certain court case. And so this man obviously was a very bad man. Then you have this woman. Women in the first century Jewish world were, generally speaking, a lot more vulnerable than men. Perhaps this is true in many places of the world, and perhaps many would argue the same is true here in America. Um, But in this particular instance, this would have been very true, because you not only have a woman, but you have a widow. She had no protection. She had no one to advocate for her. In terms of what we would call social capital today, she had none. She herself was going before the judge, not even in the court setting, but on his way to work. She was coming to him, which would have been very, very, very unusual. She had no other advocate. She had no son. She had no husband. She had no father. She had no nephew. She had no uncle. She had no male who could go before you. She was completely socially isolated. She had nothing. She was a widow, right? Uh, Being a widow, she had no social security. She had no inheritance. She had no life insurance policy. No land was being passed to her because she was a woman and she was weak. She had no way of threatening the judge like perhaps others would have in that century. Perhaps to some judge, uh, someone could say, well, if you don't give me my outcome, I will burn your house and take your wife and kids. Well, she had no way of doing that. And then beyond all of those very obvious things, the text says that she was a victim. Right, so think about it for a minute. She had an adversary. She had someone who was perpetually coming after her. She was a victim of abuse of the nature. We are not sure, but your mind can wander. She was someone who regularly said, I need help. Someone is taking advantage of me, and I am powerless. Can you do something about this? You getting the picture? A powerless widow, the most vulnerable of all people in first century world, and a evil, corrupt judge. The picture describes that um, she's not in the courthouse, but she's literally probably following him to work every day. Like, I know where you live, I know where the court is, and I'm just going to follow you every day. And the only thing that I have is the ability to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. I have nothing else. I have no power over you. I have no authority. I have no way to bribe you. I have no way to threaten you. I have nothing other than the ability to keep asking. In verse 4, we read this, And for a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, which is fascinating that he says that out loud, he says, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Man, again and again and again, she's like, I just need justice. Can you give me what's right? And in this story, like, she has a legit problem. She has an adversary. She needs help. What's the point of the story? We keep reading. Will, this is what Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect? who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? 
I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now then this is fascinating to me. It says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and here's a question, will he find faith on earth? So again, remember how this all begins. This all begins back in chapter 17 where the Pharisees and uh, Jesus' disciples are, are asking this question. We have this expectation that you're going to work in a certain way. We're, we're looking around and we're seeing all kinds of injustices, right? I, I see political oppression. I see problems. I see um, the, the fact that we are victimizing each other, that we are abusing one another. God, are you going to do something about the state of the world that I see? And the promise back in 17 was, oh, I'm going to do something about it. And the promise again in verse 8 is, yes, I promise you there will be a time when I will come and I will make all wrongs right. And Jesus very clearly says that God is a good good judge and that he will bring justice and he will bring it to them speedily. And he's referring to the time that Jesus comes back. Right? So if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe that the Bible is true, the Bible speaks of a time when Christ will come back and make all wrongs right. So we can sit here as a victim today, as someone who is, who is hurting, who looks around, who sees all kinds of pain, and we can anticipate a day when God will come and when he will wipe away all that is wrong and he will make right everything one day. But while we wait, but while we wait, the, the invitation is keep asking. Keep asking, keep asking, and why? Why, does, why is the invitation to keep asking? Going all the way back to verse 1, wrapping up in verse 8, so that we will not lose faith. That's so interesting. It's so interesting that he says from the very beginning, so that you will keep your faith, pray with perseverance. So here we are, we're, we're the widow, but we're not before an evil judge, we're before a good judge. And the invitation is, if you want to keep your faith, you have to keep asking. You got to keep putting yourself out there saying, okay, I know that you're good. I know that I'm not seeing what I think I should be seeing, but I need to keep asking. The invitation to prayer is that we would keep on asking so that we would not lose our faith. This is interesting. When you talk about prayer, there's so many different ways that we can go with prayer. Um, honestly, like you could, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses about prayer, but I want to look at just five things this morning when it comes to prayer. We're going to just finish this sermon with five simple things all around this whole idea that starts in in Luke 18, verse one, ending in the question that Jesus says, when the son of man returns, will he find faith on earth? Point number one, prayer is essential to faith and perseverance. Um, I'm going to read just a number of verses here. Ephesians 6, 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. James 5, 13. If anyone is in trouble among you, let him pray. Psalm 102, 17. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Luke 6, 12. Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continuously. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And then I love this from Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7.13. This is the Lord speaking. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Again, this is God speaking. 
or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Listen to this in verse 15. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. And I could literally go on again and again and again, all these different ways that the Bible talks about prayer. It is essential to, to the Christian. We talked about how uh, to, to be a Christian, there's no such uh, person in the New Testament that's not belonging to a church. There's also no Christian who doesn't pray. It is the absolute bedrock to our faith. To be a follower of Jesus means that we have a relationship with him and to have a relationship with him insists that we have communication with him and to have communication with him means that we are people who regularly pray. If you want clarity in how to love Jesus, it begins with prayer. Richard Foster writes this. This is a book that's out in the lobby. You can pick it up. Um, He writes this when it comes to prayer. And he says, prayer is the essential avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, you will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. Right? If you want to grow, you're going to pray. You just, you just are. I was reading a statistic. It's a little bit of an older statistic. And I have to imagine that if you were, had attentive ears in the early 90s in church, that you heard the statistic. Um, this was a Barna poll that was done in the early 90s, in 93, I believe it was. And they were looking at different Christian couples within the church and looking at divorce rates. And um, they were looking at people who came to church regularly. And um, what would be your guess as far as people who came to church regularly in the divorce rate? Just what do you think the divorce rate was for those who came regularly to church? It's exactly the same as those who didn't. It's about one in two uh, in the early 90s. This came out in 93. For couples... Now, this, this number is staggering. It's almost hard to believe. For couples who prayed together every day, you have any idea what the divorce rate is? One in 1,153. Like, if you're struggling in your marriage, like, I promise you, save your 10 sessions at a counselor for $159.95 per session and just start praying together every single day. Like, I have yet to meet the counselor that's like, yep, I'm batting one in 1,153. Couples who pray together every single day. Prayer is essential. It changes everything. Number two, prayer is simply talking to God. Uh, God speaks to us through his word, and we speak to God in prayer. Right? Um, I know amongst a, a number of different denominations, there's always kind of this debate and, well, how does God speak today? You know, if, if I sit in my favorite chair and I'm quiet long enough and, uh, you know, maybe cold plays on in the background, will God speak to me? Like, well, maybe. But the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. And the primary way that we speak to him is through prayer. And it, it happens in multiple mediums. Sometimes prayer is short and sometimes prayer is long, just like we have conversations with normal people. Right? Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long. Right? Sometimes it's, it's literally just a cry for help. Like, God, help me. Like, think about your kids, right? How often is it like I'm out doing something, and if I hear a legitimate cry for help, like, I mean legitimate, like, I will drop everything. If I hear, Dad, help, I'm going to drop everything I can to go find him. And then every once in a while, you just hear this, like, Dad, 
And he did, you know, like th- those are the moments where he's like, I'm just going to let that one go because they have some things to learn and grow. And I think God does that with us sometimes in prayer too. Like, oh, my car's not good enough. God, oh, my wife, my kids, oh, my job. And I think sometimes the Lord's just like, okay, yeah, you'll get through this. Right? But then sometimes like prayer needs to be longer. Just like we have normal conversations with people that we love. Like sometimes, you know, my, my wife and I in the morning, it'll be quick. Hey, you know, getting ready for kids, school and work and life. And, and it's quick conversations, but you got to have long conversations too. Right? Like with your kids, maybe you get some kids that are off to college. Like, you know, mom just calling. Hey, what's going on? How's life? You got to have those long conversations. And the same is the truth of the Lord. It's just talking with him. I know it can be hard. It can be weird. It can be unusual if you're not used to this, right? Like you're talking about something that's finite, talking to something that's infinite. That can be a little intimidating, right? You're talking about something that's, that experiences life primarily in the physical to someone who is primarily not in the physical. Like that can be a little bit daunting at times. But the invitation is simply to talk. Number three, prayer like exercise, needs to be learned. In Luke 11, uh, we read this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us. And these are people who've been praying for a long time. These are are people who've been with Jesus. These are people who grew up primarily in the Jewish world where prayer was a normal part of going to synagogue, of of being a part of Sabbath. And and they're saying, like, "If if I've seen this regularly, I don't know if I got it right. So, Lord, help me. Teach me. Right? Prayer needs to be taught. Right? And it's one of those things that I, I believe also can be caught. Right? It's caught and taught. Like, so for our kids in our home, in our life, like, this rhythm, like, we have to be, like, my kids need to know that prayer is something that we regularly do. Right? So early in the morning, my wife does a great job at the table. Like, she will pray for our kids, kind of doing a little Bible time. And then, like, on Tuesdays after dinner, we, we pray for our missionaries together. On Thursdays, we pray for our close friends. We'll, we'll grab some pictures. Kids get to decide, okay, who's, who are we praying for? And we pray for them. And, like, if I'm dropping my kid off at school, which is a little bit rare, but if I do, my kids are like, Dad, you gotta, don't, don't forget, you got to pray. And, you know, you hear an ambulance, God, you got to pray. Uh, Dad, you got to pray. It's, it's just something that we got to regularly do. And I'm not sitting here trying to say, like, my family is like, like this holy, righteous, like pastor family who's like the pinnacle of prayer, like by any means, like if it's Thursday and we're praying for friends and like if we have like most people at the table, fully clothed, like attention span for 15 seconds, like that can be a win sometimes. But the fact of the matter is we got to teach that. Like if you're a grandma and grandpa and you got young kids and, and you know, maybe mom and dad aren't quite where they where you would like them to be following the Lord. Like you can teach them as grandma and grandpa. Hey, come just, this is what grandpa and I do. We pray and God will hear you and God loves you. You know, in your community groups, like some of us in groups, like we've been praying for a long time. Some of us, it's like, it's a new thing. It's an awkward thing to be praying out loud in front of other people. Like we can, we can be practicing these things together, but prayer needs to be learned. Number four, God hears our prayers and answers them. And sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's wait, right? Like, and that's the way it should be. Like, practically speaking, that's definitely the way it should be. Like, can you imagine if, if you said yes to everything that your kids ever asked you? Like, life would be miserable for everyone all the time if you just said yes, right? Like, Dad, can I have this? Yes. Dad, can I have this? Yes. Dad, can I have this? Yes. Yes. Like, that would be, that would be awful, Right, last week I shared that uh, recently I've been taking my, my girls to, to donuts on Saturday morning. And my five-year-old yesterday, for whatever reason, she just thought it was the funniest thing. 
for the entire day, she just kept asking me, dad, can I have another donut? And she knew that I was going to say no, but like the whole day, I'm not joking, like 50 times, dad, can I have another donut? Can I have another donut? And I, I, I just kept saying, yes, yes, yes. And she'd say, well, when, well, when, well, next week. But like we, we live in a world where clearly God's just not going to say yes all the time. Right, my three-year-old last week asked me if she could have a flamingo. Like, <laughs> no. No, you can't. And I think that's how God responds to us sometimes. Like, we have ridiculous prayers at times. So sometimes he has to say no. Right, and think, think through, like, if God said yes to every time that we prayed for someone with cancer, like, no one would ever die. Like, you'd have people walking around 8,000 years old, like, keep praying. I mean, eventually you get to the point where you're going to be praying that they would die. But for a long time, like... Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's later. Oftentimes it has to be no. God has to say no for our own development, for our own character, for our own perseverance. And that's our, those are hard, right? It's just like as, as a parent, sometimes the easier thing is to say yes, but the better thing is to say, you can figure it out. This is going to be good for your development. All right, we see this all over scripture. We see this in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, or when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, it's pretty rare that most of us are, are just saying, God, thank you for all these trials in my life. Like most often our prayers are like, can you just get me out of this trial, please? And God has to often just say, no, I, like, I need you to get through this because of who you're going to be on the other side. The famous verse from Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Um, If God said yes to everything, we'd have no hope, we'd have no character, we'd have no perseverance. So very often God has to say no, he's got a bigger plan. And the last one here, prayer has two purposes. It moves the hand of God and it moves the hearts of men. Right? And this is a hard one to grasp with. Like, it is hard for me sometimes to believe that, God, really, like, if I pray, you, you will move your hand and the world will be different? That, that's hard to believe sometimes. It really is. I love, I love James. He writes this in, in verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He even has to say that, with a nature like ours. He's like, he's just a normal guy. And he prays fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. I think sometimes we just miss out on the things that God could do because we don't ask. We just sit back and we're like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I'm, just, I'm just okay. I'll get through. And we don't come before him and say, God, what do you have for my relationship? God, what do you have for my business? God, what do you have for this, for this kid of mine? What do you have for my parents? Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open." But then more than just moving the hand of God, we know this, that when we pray, it moves our hearts. And that's kind of the whole point of this section that we're going to come back to in Luke 18. In Matthew 5, we read this. It says, Have you heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. The Bible talks about praying for those who we have issues with. And it's primarily not just for them, it's for us. Right? Think about this. Think about the last time that you were in a conflict with your spouse. Maybe it's like literally on the way to, to church here this morning. I don't know. We're all over the place. 
But how great would it be if in that moment you said, you know what, Lord, like, let's just take a quick time out and like, let's go pray for the other spouse. And not in like that Elijah, like bring down fire from heaven type of prayer. I see some of you. Yeah. Oh, I'll pray. God, you are a just God. Like, no, like God, help me, help me to see my spouse the way you see them. Help, help my spouse to see themselves the way you see them. Lord, help me. Like what, what am I, what am I contributing here? That's no good. Pray for your enemies, the scripture says, primarily so that my heart will be changed. And why? Remember where this all started in Luke 18. Um, we pray so that we don't lose heart. See, I think, isn't that, it's, it's fascinating. It's not like pray that if you pray enough, a good judge is going to come. That's not what it says. It doesn't say pray, pray, pray so that the judge will come. So that uh, righteousness will be made. It's, it's pray so that you don't lose heart because a good judge is coming. And then in the end, when he comes, he's looking for people who've made it. I think that's fascinating, that question. Will he find faith? Will he find faith when he comes back? So as we wrap it up, I'm going to wrap it up quickly here. We're either in one of three spots. I think for some of us, like prayer is a regular, normal thing in our life. And we're just going and life's good and, and we've got a routine. And I would just ask you, like, where are areas in your life that you can be teaching and training other people? Because if prayer needs to be learned, it's got to be taught from somewhere. And the best place often to teach is through relationships. So maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a grandkid. Who do you need to teach? And what areas in your prayer lives can you increase? Because we all need more. Our church needs more. Like if God actually moves and works through the hand of prayer, like you can always ask for more. Then I think there's some of us who are kind of got that gimp leg and we're like, yeah, I'm okay. And the invitation is no. It's, again, it's the disciplines, right? It's, it's there are things that we can do to get us in a place so that we will not lose heart. Maybe um, for you, it's, it's joining a group. Maybe it is opening up with a friend that in a way that you haven't before, like, hey, can I, can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Like, maybe it's starting something new there. And then for some of us, we're in the spot where we're just totally questioning this whole prayer thing altogether. Like, man, I, I don't know. I've been praying for something for a long, long time. And it just doesn't feel like you're there. Right? Like, I think that's how this all started in chapter 17 when you have the Pharisees saying, I, I expect to see something. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah you're not going to see it the way you expected, but don't, don't lose heart. Keep praying so that your faith will increase. I would just encourage you, if you're that person who's just going, I don't know about this, I'd just say, just try. Just put something before the Lord. God, I, I want my faith to be increased. Would you help me? And the invitation is to do that. We would pray. So I'm going to close this up. We're going to sing two songs and then we'll pray a little bit more. Lord, um, thank you for your invitation to all of us to talk to you. Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes. It's different. Um, but if your word is true, and again, that's, that's a really important argument. If your word is true, the invitation is that prayer moves your hand and it moves my life. And it can be so easy just to get in the routine of I go to work, I come home, I, I do this, I do that, I do this. And God, you already know anyways, so I don't need to pray. And your word knows nothing of that. 
I go back to that verse that we read that Jesus himself went away all night and he prayed. That's pretty humbling. If God of the universe needs to get away for a night and pray, Lord knows I need it. So Lord, would you give me a hunger to desire you more? And then would you give me the willingness and the diligence to do it, to seek you? We love you. We need you. Amen. Amen.